Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. With its history as a sanctuary for religious outsiders, the United States holds religious freedom so dearly that it is protected in the very first amendment to the Constitution. But who decides when and to what extent the United States government intervenes when religion harms children? Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. Our guest today is Marcy Hamilton, professor of law at Cordozo Law School and an expert on both religious freedom and child welfare. Professor Hamilton, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start with framing the issue? The First Amendment gives me a right to religious freedom. Are there limitations? Well, there's never been unlimited rights to religious freedom. Uh, You have an unlimited right to believe anything you want. That's the beauty of the United States. But there are limits on conduct. So I can believe it, but maybe I can't practice in certain ways. Exactly. Just like Thomas Jefferson said, uh, we're going to protect beliefs until they break out into acts. And it's the actions that can be governed. So my beliefs should not harm others, essentially. The the basic bottom line is both from Locke and from uh, John Stuart Mill, and that is that when we harm someone, we are held to account. And that's basically the American way under the Constitution. My religious belief shouldn't harm other people, but what if it's only harming myself? Well, a lot of laws have states against suicide, but short of that, adults have the right essentially to do what they choose. And that includes foregoing life-saving medical treatment? Absolutely. Maybe we can transition into the special interests that the government has for children. Unfortunately, children don't vote, uh, so they often lose out in the legislative context. But when it comes to most states and under federal law, parents and adults are required to protect the interests of children uh, and not to harm them. If you're simply required not to harm children, where does the government get involved? Well, the government has a whole host of laws that are intended to protect children. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But there are laws in every state that don't permit child abuse. They don't permit child sex abuse, uh, medical neglect, letting a child die or be permanently disabled of an illness that could be prevented. Uh, these are all laws in every state, and, uh, but in some states they are stronger than in other states. So you mentioned neglect and abuse. Why don't we start in the medical universe? What types of issues are we dealing with here? Well, we have two major universes right now. One is uh, what's now called the anti-vaxxer movement, which is parents who are choosing not to vaccinate their children, and some law- states permit that. California has had a very liberal law that is now being considered to be changed. But states like West Virginia and Mississippi do not permit parents to have a choice. You must vaccinate your children, regardless of your religious faith. On the other side of the universe are just the the vanilla medical neglect laws. And a state normally says that you may not deprive your child of ordinary medical care uh, if the child is either going to die or is going to become permanently disabled. Uh, Unfortunately, we have quite a few states, though, that say that if you are a religious parent and you are denying medical care to your child based on your faith, that then you're not liable and you're not obligated to protect that child. Let's get to that, but start with the vaccinations. These are required by the government, but 
allow certain exemptions. How does that work? Right. Well, it depends on the state. I mean, we're in a 50-state experiment in the United States, uh, and we have everything from the states that say absolutely no exemptions, West Virginia, Mississippi, and the most liberal state has been California, which has said that you don't have to vaccinate your child if you have a religious or a philosophical objection to uh, vaccination. And it has been that broad interpretation that has led to California being one of the most unsafe states in the country for children. There are many people who advocate that vaccines can be dangerous. They are on the wrong side of medical science. Okay, well today we won't get into the medicine. Well, you, you can't avoid the medical science here because uh, legislatures must make decisions on the protection of children based on the best medical science there is. And uh, there are legitimate debates in medical science on all sorts of issues on the effectiveness and the need for vaccinations for the welfare of the, of the country, there is no meaningful debate. But 90% you're saying of doctors. Yeah. That, doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean all vaccinations. It means all vaccinations that are currently be, being required by standard pediatric guidelines. So if you look to the American Academy of Pediatrics, there's a list of vaccinations that are considered a minimum of what children should get. Those are the vaccinations we're talking about. With these vaccinations, some parents essentially say, look, this isn't healthy for my child. I don't want it. What's preventing them from doing that? Well, it depends on the state. Uh, if you have a state that has no exemption, they don't have that choice. That child will not be permitted to go to school or that child will not be permitted to be in extracurricular activities if they don't obtain the vaccination. In a state like California, up until recently, uh, Children just didn't get vaccinated uh, until the point right now that 25% of the school children in the state of California right now are at risk of deadly diseases because so few are getting vaccinated. So what we're dealing with is the clash between medical science and religious faith. But in the middle are the victims, and those are the children that have the capacity to be now infected with diseases that, for example, in 2000, it was declared that measles was now eradicated from the United States. This year, we had a measles outbreak in Disneyland. It's in due California. to in California, and it's due to the low level of vaccination rates in the country that has led to measles outbreaks. So, what kind of legal change would prohibit this? Well, what we need to see if we're going to protect children from being disabled or dying from these diseases uh, is to eradicate the exemptions. Uh, you have to have a medical exemption. There are some children who simply can't survive a vaccination because they have uh, an immune suppressant disease. They are not strong enough to be immunized. But unless we vaccinate the vast majority of children, we are going to have these kinds of life, uh, these um, childhood illnesses affecting larger and larger numbers of children. But this isn't just about children, because when you let the children not be vaccinated, you then endanger the elderly who are very much at risk of these diseases. And so, Whether or not they've been vaccinated? Whether or not they've been vaccinated. And so it is, uh, it's a real gamble to let them out from under this. But the notion that the First Amendment requires a parent to be able to avoid a vaccination, that's just false. 
there is no First Amendment right to avoid a neutral and general law that applies to everybody. That's just what the First Amendment says. And so for those parents who are saying they shouldn't have to because they have rights, uh, they're not talking about constitutional rights. So where I'm torn when it comes to the issue of vaccines is what, who's making the decision? And yes, the, if there's a consensus of medical experts, but consensus of medical experts have been wrong before. Well, that, that's a, um, there's a myth in the United States that actually every fact in the medical community is debatable. But for the top pediatricians in the country in the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, if you've got 85 to 90% agreement, there is no meaningful debate. Well, there was 85 to 90% agreement that ear surgery was helpful for, you know, ear tube implants were helpful. And now no one thinks that's a good idea. That's not gonna happen with vaccinations. Uh, we know for a fact that if you reach below about 85 to 90% of vaccination rate, you lose what's called herd immunity. When you lose herd immunity, you have lost all of your ground because you have enough people at that point to reintroduce the disease into the culture. Uh, you know, part of what's resisted here is uh, a desire to trump science and to be smarter than the doctors and to know more because we, we read the web. But there's one thing we do know, and that is that we've seen again and again, when you get under a certain percentage, herd immunity is lost, and the result is people are either infected, become ill, and or die. I think part of what's going on in the United States right now is that the current generation has no idea what it means to have measles or mumps or whooping cough. Or TB. Or, or tuberculosis or polio for that example, for that matter. And so if you don't know how serious the illness is, it's very easy to say, oh, I have a right not to be able to vaccinate, vaccinate my children. Uh, but we know what we know in part about the risks of not vaccinating because we have religious cultures in which we've had uh, been able to watch what happens when you don't vaccinate most of your children. For example, the Amish in Pennsylvania. The Amish community does not vaccinate. They do not vaccinate. And that has meant that we've seen measles and whooping cough outbreaks in this smaller community, which show us what can happen in the larger community. That's related to exemptions, opting right. out of mandatory vaccinations. Right. Why don't we talk a little bit about abuse and neglect and related to the medical universe. Here we're talking about foregoing life-saving treatment. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that few Americans know is that it was during the Nixon administration that we had the first laws in the United States enacted which give parents the right to use faith not to treat their children for easily treatable ailments. And what happened was, is we had- We're talking about blood transfusions. We're talking about everything, blood transfusions, antibiotics for meningitis, uh, any kind, a treatment for a diabetic, for example. One of the ugliest deaths of children in religious homes is a death from diabetes. It is a horrific, long-lasting death that occurs under prayer in a number of faith healing homes, uh, whether it's faith assembly or it's uh, church of the firstborn, followers of Christ, Christ Church. These are churches and believers that do not want to provide medical treatment for their children. 
and they don't just let the child die, which is awful, but they let them suffer horrifically while they pray over them. The general view is that what's happening is what God wants. That's right, that it would be sinful to provide the treatment. Now, what we have is a state where we've had large pockets of these believers, and we've been able to watch what happens statistically. When Oregon, you, for example. Oregon, although Oregon tightened up its laws relatively recently, uh, but a number of those believers moved over to Idaho, and now we have a sudden uptick in child deaths in Idaho, largely from pneumonia and meningitis, easily treatable ailments, but when you don't provide the, the antibiotic, these, child, these children die. But, so what's, what's the legal claim made by the parents? Well, the legal claim is they are not breaking the law because that state says that they have an exemption. If they are a believer and if they are relying on faith alone, they're not responsible for the life of the child. They can't be prosecuted. They can't be sued for civil damages. Uh, and these all started under the Nixon administration when there were two Christian scientists who uh, added a requirement in federal law for a state to get Medicare funding. And that requirement was you must exempt faith healers from having to get medical care in order to get federal funds. Uh, it took a series of child deaths for child advocates to understand what was going on. And now there is a push to roll back those exemptions but they are still in place in many, many states. The issue there is the parent isn't actually causing harm as much as preventing a life-saving uh, aid. Right. In that circumstance, the parent is letting the child suffer and die. And normally, if you were in a circumstance where you had a very poor family and they simply couldn't get to medical care and they couldn't do anything about it, the state is notified the child is taken under the wing of the state, and the state then provides the medical care. For these faith healing communities, they know to make sure the child is hidden so that state authorities cannot find the child and that the child actually will pass away or become permanently disabled before the state has any inkling of what is going on. Uh, they're protecting their faith, but at the same time, they are being acting very dangerously toward the welfare of that child. Some states, that's okay. In other states, it's not. In the states where it's not okay, what type of violation is taking place? Uh, in those states, it's criminal neglect. And the parents can be prosecuted and put in jail for the death of their children. Uh, and that's happened in Philadelphia. It's happened in Oregon. It's happened in California. It's happened all over the country. Uh, it's very, I think Americans are often surprised at how many faith groups actually do permit children to die or to be disabled before uh, they will ever let anybody know what's happening. So in those examples, the government, local or federal, has gone after the parents. How about liability for the community at large? Well, there are, there are several cases in which you have divorced parents, for example. And uh, in one case in particular, the mother in Minnesota remained very devoted to her faith. The father from whom she was divorced was not there. Under her care, their child died of diabetes. He then sued for damages, saying that this was a wrongful death. She had basically killed their child for the faith. 
And she responded that the First Amendment protected her and gave her the right to do that. Uh, the courts were essentially split on what the result was, in part because of the state law was, was not clear. I mean, more recently in Wisconsin, Wisconsin authorities prosecuted a couple who were part of an online cult that did not believe in medical care and let their child die. Those adults' parents are currently now in jail. It's an interesting philosophical quandary. You, you have a parent who's grieving for their child and you're going to put them in jail. Right. Well, we as a culture are very deferential to religious believers. Uh, and psychologists have, have uh, created two terms to try to explain how is it that you could be willing to say that an adult should have the ability to let a child die? And why is it okay in a faith healing home? Uh, it's called the halo effect, uh, and it's called cognitive dissonance. These are two factors that feed into our ability to be able to tolerate adults that let children either be medically or sexually abused. And in this universe, uh, it's been my mission, essentially, to try to educate the public that the First Amendment does not stand for the proposition that anyone has the right to let anyone else die. The framers... You have the right to let me die. Uh, well, I have... That's right. A bystander has no obligation to save someone else, but they certainly can't accelerate that death. For children, they're utterly defenseless. And they're defenseless in two ways. One, they can't protect themselves if the parents aren't choosing to protect them. But they don't understand that this isn't a normal childhood. They don't know they need to reach out to the neighbor or to the policeman to say, this isn't right. You know, my, my brother is really sick and nobody's doing anything. They don't have the background to be able to understand that. And so children are so much at risk that unless we have laws that protect them, uh, we will have many, many more unneeded deaths. And it's not just the laws that protect the children. There's some lack of clarity as to what the responsibility a hospital might have. For example, in a case of an emergency where a child is a member of one of these religious groups. Well, I do think that's a serious problem. And that's one of the projects that I'm working very hard on is how do you explain to pediatricians and hospitals what their legal obligation is in a culture which is so deferential to religious believers? And right. where doctors are often afraid of lawyers. Well, doctors should be afraid of lawyers. Uh, they, they have uh, created a lot of problems. But the fear is usually a result of not fully understanding state law. But it's also often because the state law is actually not good for the children. Uh, and uh, the pediatrician can be hamstrung in choosing how to help the child. Hamstrung is in just waiting to make an actual decision or well, limited? The doctor can't go forward until there is a court order that permits them to provide care against the wishes of the parents. And uh, so often you need a hospital that is very proactive that has active lawyers on staff that know how to go through the process. If they don't, that child can die before uh, there's any kind of saving medical treatment. Maybe you could walk us through an example. Well, let's say in uh, uh, a large city that you have a child who is brought to a hospital by a neighbor. 
and the neighbor says, uh, this child just doesn't look right. There, there's something fundamentally wrong. Uh, the parents were at work, and I saw the child, and so I brought the child in. And it's the hospital's obligation to find the parents to get permission for treatment. Well, while the child is not doing well in the hospital, the parents rush in, and the parents say, you cannot treat that child. That is, that's our child. You, we have to give you authorization. Well, it's at that point that the hospital to go to the next step in treatment must obtain a court order to override the parent's desires or the child doesn't get treated. And so it is. it can be a very scary moment and sometimes doctors will do everything they possibly can to save the child. Maybe the parents know, maybe they don't. Uh, but usually when the system's working correctly, you can do an emergency request for protection of the child, and if the child's life really is in danger, the court will issue an order that overrules the parents. You can do an expedited order, uh, and sometimes you have judges on call for these things. Sometimes not. It depends on the state. Are there examples where doctors have been punished or held financially accountable for providing medical treatment? Well, it depends on the state law, and uh, often in the sects that do not believe in medical care for children, they don't go to court. They don't want publicity. They don't want to be watched. And so often they will not go after uh, the, uh, the doctor or the hospital, but they'll melt into another part of the universe so that the next time nobody will see that child with suffering and nobody will come to help them. One particular treatment that's gotten a lot of publicity is medical transfusions of blood. Right. Why is that relevant? Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in blood transfusions, and it, with the advance of science, leukemia is now relatively easily treated in young people through blood transfusions. Uh, so, for example, I received a call from a grandmother several years ago. She told me that she had a grandchild who was just diagnosed with leukemia, but his parents were Jehovah's Witnesses, and they were refusing to permit him to have the treatment. The grandmother had no standing to be able to force the child to get medical treatment, and the parents stood on the exemption in the state that gave them the right to determine medical treatment. Now, one of the wrinkles here is that when a child reaches about the age of 14 or 15 in most states, they can choose the medical treatment. So the doctor would ask the child himself or right. herself. So in this case, the child turned 14, and the doctors asked the child, and to the grandmother's horror, the child said he chose his faith over his health, and he died six months later. A 14-year-old child has no idea what it means to give up the rest of their life. They don't know what a 20-year-old knows, or a 30-year-old, or a 50-year-old. They're a child. So it seems like an additional protection, in some cases, really isn't. Not only is it not a protection, it's giving the decision-making into the hands of someone who is inherently incapable of making an informed judgment. You know, the more we move on with uh, the neurology uh, of the brain and studying how children make decisions, ordinarily, the brain does not fully develop for that kind of thinking until about the age of 26. So you are asking a child of 14 whose brain is not close to being able to assess what it means to die to make that choice. 
under the influence of parents who want them to make that choice. And so we have far too many deaths of children that either the parents simply don't do the right thing or the child is given the decision-making authority when they're actually not capable of making it. A quick pause for those who are listening for CLE, MCLE credit in California. The code for this interview is 081715. Again, that's 081715. And now back to the interview. How about the inverse? Where you have a state where parents are allowed to make this decision and then the child says, you know what, I, I want that blood transfusion. Right. Well, and that's, that's the hard part about having these hard age, cut, age cutoffs, is that a child who is not willing to buy into the parent's beliefs may well say, I don't want to die. And sometimes that does happen. And in a lot of states, uh, it can be as young as age 12. They have the capacity to do that. Now, the problem for them is that they then often have to choose not to live in the religious community. And so that's why it's such a hard decision, because you're not just choosing to live, but you're also choosing that you're not going to be part of this universe ever again. Or abandoning your nuclear family. Right. And, and for many religious faiths that are as isolated from society as the faith-healing organizations are, there are penalties for going beyond the rules. Um, so the best example is, for example, is uh, Jehovah's Witnesses who disfellowship someone who does not follow the rules. That means that you are not allowed contact with your parents, with your grandparents, with your friends. You're cut off. You are cut off because you've chosen Satan over the faith. And that's just one example of many faiths that put people to that choice. And when you have the choice of no family uh, and Satan, over being in the faith, you may choose death at a very early age. One additional topic that's been in the news lately mm-hmm. has to do with ultra-Orthodox Jews mm-hmm. and a practice involving circumcision. Uh, how has that been playing out, and what are the legal issues there? Well, this is the practice, uh, which is abbreviated MBP, uh, which involves a moil, who is a rabbi, Uh, who then circumcises a boy at a very, very young age. Uh, And as part of the ceremony, he then puts the young uh, infant's penis in his mouth and sucks the blood from it. And what's happened is children have gotten herpes and have died or have had permanent brain injury, which is what herpes does to very young children. And so there's been quite a bit of back and forth uh, and at one point, the city of New York actually banned the practice. There was an incident that well, happened they, in New York where someone, a child died. Well, there have been several children that have died uh, in New York, in, in, outside of New York City. New York City Health Department banned it at one point. Uh, political pressure from the ultra-Orthodox Jews forced back uh, the New York City Health Department. So they then said, well, if we're not so going it's, to... So it's an ancient tradition that goes back... Thousands of years. And only a few, a small percentage of the ultra-Orthodox still practice it. Very tiny percentage. The vast majority use a pipette. They use a sterile pipette to 
get the blood off of the incision and their mouth never touches the child. Uh, but there are quite a few Moyles left who are doing this. Uh, and even if they won't say publicly they're doing it, we know from inside the community that it's still happening frequently. And uh, the risk is unreasonable. Um, on the other hand, the city of New York has done nothing at this point uh, to prosecute these individuals who've let their child be injured, and there's no reason they will. Why? Because it's a voting block. And this voting block has had extraordinary power to permit uh, both the cover-up of child sex abuse and the cover-up of these deaths of these children. So here we're talking about a traditional practice that may be spilling over into actual abuse of children. This is a traditional practice. No one disagrees. It's been going on for thousands of years. Uh, Maybe it was good technology 2,000 years ago. Well, who knows? Who knows? Uh, but medical science is uh, tracing the strains of herpes, and these moils are causing children to be extremely ill. And the response from the government in the state of New York, in the city of New York, is to do absolutely nothing. We're dealing with the problem across the United States of blind deference to religious parents and to religious believers, and this is something that has gone on for centuries in the United States, and it's only recently that we've learned how to talk about religious actors as potentially doing things that are wrong, and as we continue to have that conversation, we're making it more and more possible that children can be protected. If you can't say a religious group's doing anything wrong, then you can't protect the children that are at risk in that group. The, the more isolated a community, the more likely it is that a child's at risk because you don't have any of the fail-safe mechanisms we have in the rest of the community for children. Uh, so mandatory reporting of abuse and neglect from public schools, you don't see that in these isolated communities because these children don't go to public school. Uh, if you have mandatory reporting by a doctor, if you don't take your child to a doctor, they won't report neglect and abuse. Mandatory reporting by a psychiatrist. All of the ways in which we have a safety net for children from abuse and neglect in most families, most of those are completely undercut in a religious community that refuses to deal with the outside world. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.